Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. So here's what I thought we would do today. We, we just celebrated Yom Ma'ut, Israel's uh, Independence Day, Israel's Independence Day number 74, which means we're a year away from 75. And that's obviously an enormously important milestone in the, in the lifetime of, of a relatively young country. Now, by the way, young is a relative term. Right? We always think of Israel as a little baby country. Israel was the 60th or 61st country to enter the UN. There's now, I think, 190-something countries in the UN, which means that two-thirds of the world's countries are actually younger than Israel. Israel's in the oldest third of the countries in the world, but relative, you know, you talk to people who are from Britain, they find like, well, well, you know, because they've been around since the Magna Carta, which long time ago. Uh, and even in North America, obviously these countries go way back more, but I just point out at the end, as we get going, that there's a way in which Israel's a very young country, and there's, there's a way in which it really isn't such a young country anymore. It's, a, it's an unusual country in that among those countries that were founded with the decline and the falling apart of the major empires after the end of the Second World War, and including the countries that fell apart with the end of the Soviet Empire, with the fall of the Soviet Union, one of the relatively few that has been consistently democratic uh, throughout, without a single interruption. You know, one can say all kinds of things about the nature of the democratic system, but that it chugs along quite admirably that no election has ever been contested, that the loser has always said, okay, here's the keys to the house, except in the case of Raftali Ben, who didn't move into the house, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, he's still living in Ra'anana, much to the chagrin of his neighbors who are now living in a, in a security, they're like living in Fort Knox, but okay. Um, so it's a relatively young country in a lot of ways, and it's, a, it's an older country than most countries in other ways, but I think that Being a year away from 75 is an apt opportunity for us to begin to think about what actually is this place? Obviously, it's the Jewish state. Obviously, it's the national homeland of the Jewish people. Obviously, it's a a place that is very much in the minds and hearts of Jews all over the world, some of them being avid supporters, some of them being rabid opponents, some being what I would call the conflicted, committed Uh, You know, people that are definitely, their heart is in it, but they're troubled by all sorts of things quite legitimately. Um, I think this is an opportunity to think about what is this place, what was it meant to be, what was it meant to accomplish. Um, Because as we get to 75 years, we're going to want to do some assessment, and we can't assess how well it's done if we can't say to ourselves, what was it supposed to accomplish in the first place? You want to assess a school, well, how many people did it graduate and how well have they done? You want to assess a business, how much money did we think it was going to make or hope it was going to make and how much money did it make? Want to assess a nonprofit, what did we hope that would accomplish, what realities on the ground would it change? 
what realities on the ground has it changed? In other words, in order to assess whether a country is a success or not, one has to ask whether or not the country has reached the goals that it set out for itself, which means you have to ask what those goals were. Now, I'll also point out that Israel is unusual in that regard. Most countries don't have purposes. No, they don't. What's the purpose of Belgium? What's the purpose of Italy? What's the purpose of Switzerland? In other words, most countries weren't created with a purpose in mind. They were created out of the people who lived in those places. And as Europe divided itself into nation states, people who for a long time had been living in the place we now call Italy, who'd been speaking what we now call Italian, uh, they had a certain culture. And that culture and those peoples gradually became the nation state called Italy. In certain cases, obviously, like, like in Czechoslovakia and in other places, nation states were crammed together and at the end it didn't really work uh, and they, be, they, they fell apart, they came apart. Belgium's an example of a country that kind of struggles very hard to keep two different groups. Switzerland to a certain extent also tries to keep groups together through a, a governmental apparatus that more or less works. Um, but they weren't created out of nothing to say we have an idea in mind. The only other country really that kind of explicitly said that was the United States, right? Because the United States basically said, this is an experiment in governmental, a new, a new kind of government, which as Thomas Jefferson said explicitly, we hope will actually become the system of government of people all over the world. And there was a time not all that long ago when Francis Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History, in which he said, that's what's happening. The whole world is becoming liberal democracies. Now, fortunately for Francis Fukuyama, he's still alive. Unfortunately for Francis Fukuyama, he's still alive. Which means that, you know, I'm sure he's very happy to wake up each morning. He cannot be happy to read what he wrote in the end of history, given where the world is going. But that's a whole other conversation, what's happening to democracies and all of that. But the United States was an attempt to say, right, give us your tired, your poor, teeming masses, yearning to breathe free. We don't care what color you are in theory. We don't care what gender you are in theory. We don't care what religion you are in theory. We don't care where you're from. If you want to be part of this experiment, which is an entirely universal experiment, right, when in the course of human events begins the Declaration of Independence, not Christian events, not white events, not male events, when in the course of human events, that was the experiment. Whether it's working or not working is an entirely other conversation. Israel's Declaration of Independence begins, the Jewish people was born in the land of Israel. That's a very, very different first sentence from when in the course of human events. And the only other major document that you can really look at before the Declaration of Independence, which is read not that far from here, on May 14th, 1948, would be to go back to the Balfour Declaration. So you can go back to the Balfour Declaration in 1917, uh, when, which said basically His Majesty's government views with favor, favor spelled the way you spelled favor, um, His Majesty's government looks with favor on the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. A national home for the Jewish people is not the same thing as one in the course of human events. A national, a national home for the Jewish people is not the same thing as saying we're going to create a kind of a government here that we think could be copied and pasted all across the world in Europe and Africa and in Asia because we think this is the ideal form of democracy. The United States meant to create a kind of a country which would be a model democracy that then people could replicate all over the world, presumably with differences based on culture or whatever. This was never meant to be that. That's critically important to understand. This was never meant to be 
a small Hebrew-speaking falafel-eating version of the United States or Canada or anything else. It just wasn't meant to be that. It is an entirely different experiment. And that's why when we judge what's happening here according to the standards that we would hold Canada accountable or the United States accountable or England or Germany or France or anything else, we're missing the point. Because again, in order to ask what the point is, we have to ask ourselves first, what were we here to do? So let me try to lay out relatively quickly what I think the major agendas of the founding fathers and mothers of this country, most of them were men, but there were definitely women involved as well, what they were, what they were trying to do in the late 1800s when Zionist writings first began to sweep across Europe, Herzl's the Jewish state comes out in 1896. The first Zionist Congress is in 1897, a mere 20 years. And we're all old enough to know that 20 years is nothing. Just a mere 20 years later, the British Empire, which is the most powerful empire in the world, adopts that in the Balfour Declaration. And only 30 years after that, 1947, the UN's gonna vote on November 29th, 1947 and declare the state. I mean, it happens so unbelievably quickly. Think about, I mean, they're not very popular these days, but think about the Chechnyans or think about the Basques, or think about all sorts of other, the Irish, think about the Kurds. I mean, there's all these other groups all across the world that have been battling and fighting for and asking for and begging for their own nation state for a very, very, very long time. The way in which Zionism went from zero to 60, really in 50 years, from 1897, which is the first Zionist Congress, 200 Jews get together in a big hall in Basel, Switzerland, and 50 years later, I mean, we're all old enough, 50 years is nothing. Right? 50 years later, the UN votes. It's just, it's just unbelievable. And we forget that. We forget that it was so quick. We forget, by the way, that in a way it was also, in a sense, too quick. We weren't really 100% ready. Uh, but we had no choice. Ben-Gurion understood. There was a vote, actually, of, of 10 people, according to most historians. There's some people that actually throw some doubt on this, but most people argue that there was this central group of about 10 people, not many less people than were sitting at this table, uh, who voted several days before whether or not to declare independence, and the vote was six to four, which literally, obviously, could not be closer. If one person changed their vote, there was no majority. Because they understood that there was going to be a war, they understood that they weren't really prepared for the war, they understood that, don't forget, this is three years after Auschwitz has stopped working. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's crazy. Um, but nonetheless, they understood that this was a one, once in a probably millennium opportunity, and therefore they grabbed it. What did they grab it? What did they grab it for? What were they trying to do? And obviously, one could speak about this for, for hours, but I want to try to lay out some things relatively quickly, and then I'll be quiet. We can we can have a conversation. What were the Zionists trying to do? In other words, why, after a thousand years in Poland, Jews have been a thousand years in Poland. Um, 300,000 of them before the war, 30,000 of them after the war. There was 90% chimneys um, and 10,000-ish now. By the way, if you want to ask from the point of view of Polish Jewry, did Hitler win or lose the war? Hitler completely won the war. His goal was to destroy Polish Jewry, which was the crown jewel of European Jewry. Completely succeeded. I and mean, we can't imagine anymore in our minds the glory that was Polish Jewry religious and secular and intellectual and plain and all different sorts of things for a thousand years. I mean, it was, it was a huge thing and he, he wanted to wipe it out and he wiped it out quite successfully. But Zionism starts before that, right? Zionism, his Jews are living in Eastern Europe. It had its ups and it had its downs, a lot of downs. 
But they had been there for a very long time. What happens all of a sudden? I, would, I think the first thing that needs to be understood is that Jews begin to understand that life in Europe is going to become untenable. They have this sixth sense. Not all of them. Not all the Jews in Germany in 1939 had a sixth sense. Many of them stayed, right? But many of the Jews in Eastern Europe especially have a sixth sense that Europe, and it's going to end badly. They had no idea how badly. They could never have in their wildest imagination imagine how horribly it would end. But they have a sense that it's going to end badly. And they decide it's time to get out. Not everybody agreed with that. Some people wanted to create autonomous Jewish places inside Europe. Some people felt that if you assimilated enough, the Europeans would finally accept you. There were huge debates about what to do about what was called the Jewish problem, the Jüdische Frage, the, the, the Jewish question. Um, but nonetheless, there were a few. They were a very small minority who said, we got to get out. We got to get out and we got to build our own country. There were those who, by the way, said we got to get out, but not build our own country. We should go back to Palestine, but we don't want to get into the business of state making because it's an ugly business. So we'll go, we'll try to get enough Jews there that there can be a significant minority of people who can build schools and who can rebuild Jewish culture, but we don't need a Knesset, a government, because all you need to do is look at the Knesset channel to know why you don't need a Knesset. Okay, that's what Achad Ha'am, for example, said even before there was a Knesset channel. Um, so there was, first of all, I think a sense that needs to be said, the sense that Europe was going to go south, which it obviously did much more horrifically than anybody imagined. Another was a sense that because your Jews lived on such thin ice in Europe all the time, they were always looking over their shoulder. They were always asking themselves, how do we need to live here in order best to avoid that? How do we need to live here in order to avoid there, avoid there being another program? What do we need to do here to make sure the government doesn't change the laws and do something else to us? What do we need to do to make sure we don't enrage the local population with whom we share the shtetl or with whom we share Vienna or with whom we share even France? Like think about Dreyfus and so on and so forth. In other words, we're constantly walking on thin ice asking ourselves what do we have to do? And certain Zionist thinkers said, normal people don't live that way. No, no, seriously. A normal people does not live shaping its life around not annoying anybody else. That's not normal. That's actually really sick. And they, I mean it in the most profound sense of illness. And there were people, we won't go into all of them who they were, but some of the critical Zionist thinkers from early on, Pinsker is one of the classic ones, but there are many others, who said basically the Jewish people are sick. It, it, it's always looking over this shoulder and that shoulder, trying not to annoy anybody. It doesn't even speak its own language anymore. Little did it know that whatever there was of Yiddish would soon be wiped out. It talks all day long about being in this place. You say the grace after meals. You say, Yerushalayim, amen. We want, you know, build and rebuild Jerusalem. You do Shabbat morning services. When will you dwell in Zion? You pray, you face east if you're in Europe. You end the Seder, you say next year in Jerusalem. Yes, we're talking about it all the time and we don't do anything about it. So what is that? No language, no security, constantly nervous, always saying we're going to go there, never going there. And Zionism basically says it's time to stop pretending. Because don't forget, it's the era of nationalism sweeping across Europe. It's the era of the nation state. And they say basically, us too. Now, by the way, in that regard, so Zionism is, first of all, Zionism, we also need to understand this, is a revolutionary movement. And it's critically important to understand that because revolutionary movements are always very much in your face. They really are. In other words, 
very few revolutions happen by people being incredibly nice and polite like you. And like my mother would like me to be, even though not. Right? In other words, revolutions, the American Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution, Mao's Revolution, and the Zionist Revolution are usually violent, almost always. What separates some of them, like the American and the Israeli, from the Russian and the French is that in the American and Israeli cases, once the revolution was successful, there was no bloodbath. Just stopped, and there was a country. In other words, the Americans did not go ahead and slaughter all the loyalists. They didn't, they just made a country with them. I'm not saying it was all perfect in sugar and spice, but they didn't slaughter the loyalists any more than here. It didn't, it didn't, you know, it didn't end up in a bloodbath internally, obviously, either. But Zionism is a revolution, and if we don't understand that Zionism is revolutionary in its very essence, we really can't understand the sort of in-your-faceness of what this whole project is about. When you hear people in certain parts of the political spectrum saying, you know, we believe blah, 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 and pounding their fist, and you say to yourself, don't they get how bad that looks and sounds on CNN? Don't they get how that just does not wash in North America? They couldn't care less. Because that's not how the revolution was won. They didn't care what the British thought. They didn't care what the State Department thought when the State Department said that Israel should not declare independence. They did not care what the State Department said after the, no, the vote, November 29th, when they said, actually, I think we goofed. Let's bring it back to the UN for a revote, which nobody knows about, but they were trying to do. They didn't care. They had a goal, and they still have a goal. I'm not, again, I'm not taking sides on any of the issues that you're probably thinking about, but just to make it understand that the revolutionary spirit of this needs to be understood in order to understand the kind of in-your-faces that Zionism is about. So it's a revolution against, first of all, a very bad future in Europe. It's a revolution against nervousness and the pressure to assimilate and the fear of anti-Semitism. It's also, ironically, a revolution against Judaism, ironically. Because Judaism had always said, when are you going to get to go back to that land? You say at the end of the Seder, you know, next year in Jerusalem, when's that going to happen? When God decides. The Talmud's very explicit. When God wants to bring you back, God will bring you back. Until then, you have to wait. And that's where the ultra-Orthodox back then, and even more than ultra-Orthodox originally, that's where the ultra-Orthodox objection to Zionism comes from. It had nothing to do with women being in the government. It had nothing to do with people dressed scantily on the beach. It had everything to do with, it's a violation of a theological premise. We have to wait until God says we're going back. And the Zionists said, no, we don't. Because if they wanted to be really, you know, obnoxious about it, they would have said, actually, no. They would have said, the God that you're waiting for is letting us get slaughtered. And part of that Talmudic passage we're not going to go into right now that says you have to wait for God to bring you back also says, but in return, God will make sure that the other nations of the world are not too harsh with you. And they would say, so God has not lived up to God's version of the, of the deal. And so we're not, we're, the deal's off. So this is a revolution against Judaism. And here's the great irony of the internal inconsistencies of Zionism. If you're going to have a revolution against Judaism, why come here? there are lots of easier places to live, right? I mean, and all sorts of places were offered and northern coast of Australia was offered and the, on Lake Michigan, believe it or not, there was a discussion on, not, on the American side. But there were all kinds of crazy places that were offered. They would never have worked, by the way, because the buzz that you felt when your plane landed 
you would not have felt landing on the northern shore of Australia. Because part of the buzz that you felt was, my ancestors were here 3,000 years ago. That's what makes this unbelievable. Not that we've been here for 75 years, but that I've actually come home. I've come home to a modern state, and I've come home to an ancient homeland. That's part of that. And I, I fly, you store before COVID, you know, fly in and out all the time, and it's rare that the plane will land, and I don't get some sort of feeling like it's just unbelievable. Like, you look at Tel Aviv, which 110 years ago literally was all sand. This was just literally all beach. It's just unbelievable. But for us at this moment, it's wondering, why did we come here? Because it's a, revol- it's a very, very Jewish revolution against Judaism. So David Ben-Gurion says, how do I know that this land belongs to us? He holds up the Bible. It says. They'd say, well, the Bible says you've got to do a lot of other things. He goes, yeah, well... Right? In other words, there, there's internal contradictions in Zionism that don't fit any kind of theological chart or flow chart or anything, but that's, that's just the nature of revolution. The passion was to come home, to redeem ourselves, to make ourselves a new people, to give new birth to the Hebrew language, and so on and so forth. There is a conflict, to be sure, and some of the Jews thought there would be a conflict, some of them thought there would not be. Herzl was sure there would not be a conflict. You look at his 1902 novel, Alt Neuland, and he describes the future Jewish state. There is a third temple rebuilt, but there's no army. He was wrong on both counts. Okay? The first count, probably for the now, for the better. The second count, unfortunately. In other words, um, but other people like Jabotinsky said, of course there's going to be a conflict. Because what do you think? We love our land more than they love their land? What kind of a paternalistic almost racist attitude is that? What, we the enlightened Europeans love land and they can just be bought off? That's what some of the Zionists thought. We'll get all the, you know, Karen Kayemet, the Nat Jewish National Fund, we're going to get all this money, we're going to buy the land, and what, they're going to just go hike off into Syria and Jordan because we bought the land. Um, Dabatinsky said that's naive and it's actually racist. If you want to be here, you're going to have to be willing to fight. Now, that's the argument that many people, of course, make that it's a colonialist project, which I do not buy in any way. But, but that's, it's very, very complicated. So the first goal, I would say, was to stop living with the sense that history is out of our control. Let's take history back into our own hands. Let's stop. Let's rebel against this fear of anti-Semitism and the pressure to assimilate. Let's live Jewishly as we want. The third thing is, of course, let's, let's rebel against us not being a real people. Real peoples have countries and borders. Real people have languages. Real peoples have school systems. Real peoples have a whole array of things that make themselves real. That's what we're going to build. Now, by the way, that's exactly what we've built. I know that there are issues, and we're going to come back to them in a second. But if you stop there, this place is an unmitigated success. Nobody walks around this country worried about anti-Semitism. No, they don't. By the way, nobody walks around this country except for visitors. I mean this a thousand percent seriously, and I don't mean it in any way denigratingly at all, but nobody walks around this country nervous about that. Nobody. Because if you did, you'd leave. But there's 10 million people here who haven't left. Nobody wants to get hurt, and everybody understands that you can get in your car in the morning and be, God forbid, in a car accident, and everybody understands that you can, God forbid, get up in the morning and fall down the stairs. And the likelihood of that is about the same as getting hurt. In, and people here say, that's the price of having a Jewish homeland. 
Uh, and now, how to resolve the conflict, well, that's a whole other world. We'll, we'll, we can talk about it if you want. But I just want, so nobody's afraid of anti-Semitism. Nobody's afraid of us not being in control of our destiny. Look at these books. Like these books written, all of these books, and this is a tiny fraction, a tiny fraction, but it's all written in a language that 150 years ago nobody spoke. People go into Israeli bookstores and they see a lot of books. I go into an Israeli bookstore and I see a miracle. I really do. It's also a miracle that, you know, there's not enough time to read all those books, unfortunately. But no, it's really unbelievable. We built this language. It had been not dormant. It had always been used for religious purposes, but nobody spoke it. There was no way to tell a plane which runway to land on. And there was no way for a doctor to say to another person at the operating table, give me that and suction that. And there was no way to say, would you like to be my boyfriend? And there was no way to say, let's go to the movies. And there was no word for tomato. I'm not making any of that up. There was nothing. And the fact that you walk around outside and hear these people, little kids five years old and people 90 years old, chit-chatting, you hear that that's a miracle. The fact that there are all these Jews outside on the street here in Tel Aviv walking around, just not worried about any. I mean, everybody in their life has worries. The people are worried about their health, they're worried about their marriages, they're worried about their kids. They're We're all worried about things, obviously. But fundamentally, their being Jewish is a source of comfort and not worry. That's an unbelievable change. And that's what I think is really critically important for you in your leadership roles, to remember and to be able to convey. There's a way in which Canada is very different from the United States. And you're lucky in that regard. I think Canada and Australia share this, which is that Israel still binds, whereas the United States, that is the farthest thing from the truth tragically. I mean, Israel is the most explosive, divisive, toxic. I mean, my Twitter feed is literally, I don't even have to work out anymore. I could sell my treadmill. All I have to do is read certain people on my Twitter feed. My blood pressure goes so high, yet I can throw out the treadmill and, you know, get another crib for another grandchild. I don't know. It's just ridiculous. But Canada and Australia are really very fortunate that you're not there. And I hope you never get there. And, you know, I think in each country the reasons are slightly different, but the, obviously the large presence of Holocaust survivors as founders of the Jewish community is part of it, not all of it. The education system, which is excellent, is part of it, not all of it. Uh, traditional societies in certain ways are part of it, not all of it. What it'll look like in two generations, I'll never know. Hopefully you will, but I won't. But we don't know. But what I think it's really critically important to try to convey to people that we're trying to bring on board is that to allow our conversation about Israel to be about the conflict or about any of the other ills that Israeli society has, like the United States, like Canada, like England, like France, like Germany, like Australia, like every other modern country in the world, is to lose the battle before we even start moving pieces on the chessboard. Because it's to change the rules. The rules are, how does this look according to the one slice of the pie that everybody else out there wants to look at without asking, why did my people get into the business of creating this country? And is the reasons that my people got into the business of creating this country, has it been successful? It's been ridiculously successful. That doesn't mean that, by the way, we've got it all figured out, even leaving the conflict and other issues aside. Everybody gets to live here Jewishly the way that they want. So there was an explosion of Jewish creativity. This building, 
This building, which is home to Alma, right? This, this institution here is an institution of Jewish learning founded by and for secular Jews. Secular Jews get together, meet here in Hebrew, and study Talmud. That's what this building is. It was founded by Ruth Calderon, who's still involved in it to a great extent. Who um, was then a member of Knesset, a very impressive person. That's an, ex- that's an expression of something that doesn't really exist in most other places, that there's a group of people that will get together, of course, an entire institution that, by the way, on Shavuot, will get, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people outside somewhere in Tel Aviv to study on all night, secular people. There are places you can go in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, the city of sin in Israel. There's places you can go in Tel Aviv on a Friday night, and there's hundreds of people outside, secular people bringing in Shabbat together. Davening Kabbalat Shabbat. For the same theological reasons that people are sitting in a synagogue in Jerusalem? No. But that's the beauty of it. That what binds them together is that there is no Hebrew word for Saturday. They could have made one up. But there's no Hebrew word for Saturday. The only word you can use, even if you eat pork on Yom Kippur, is Shabbat. That's the only word you can use. So, you know, when somebody says at work or something, you know, a total secular person, I, mean, I used to have this assistant, she was great, and she would tell me what she was going to be doing Saturday night, and she'd say, B'motza'e Shabbat. That's how you say Saturday night. B'motza'e Shabbat, when Shabbat goes out. And I used to chuckle to myself. Like, the, the Jewish state has actually kidnapped you, and it's holding you hostage inside its own vocabulary. But I mean it in a kind of a great way. It means that it doesn't matter how you live or where you live, Shabbat is Shabbat, and you know it's Shabbat because that's the name of the day. There's no Saturday. And there's people that go to shuls in Jerusalem. There's people that wouldn't go to this shul in Jerusalem, but do go to that shul in Jerusalem. And there's hundreds of people on the beach, and there's people doing... Now, it also means that, by the way, if you're a Haredi, then you are allowed to live as you want, and that's going to create all kinds of financial pressures and social pressures that we have yet to figure out. And you're going to have a birth rate which is declining, but is still very high, that we're going to have to figure out. It's not the army, by the way, at all. That's the issue. Military stuff is becoming less and less human-driven and more and more machine-driven. We do not need them in the army. We need them in the workforce. Um, for a lot of reasons, because we also need them to get secular educations, because you can't really live these days if you can't read English and do some English and who knows what other languages down the road it will be. So we have the, the, the ability to live as a Jew any way that you want comes with its own complexities. And we're still trying to figure out just you know, how it is that how it is that all these different kinds of Jews are going to live together and what we're going to build here that's going to be a sustainable economy and all of that. I'll end with this following statement. There's a story, there's a great story um, of, told, by, um, told by a number of people about a well-known European rabbi who had escaped Europe, you know, had survived the war and come to Israel, but because he was very much on the right, was an anti-Zionist. And so on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, he uh, puts up an Israeli flag and lights it on fire. I actually don't know if it's true, but the point of the story you'll see in a minute. And this person walks by and knows who he is and says, oh, I see you've become a Zionist. And the rabbi says, what are you talking about? I'm burning an Israeli flag. And he said, well, you lived in Poland. Would you have burned the Polish flag? You would not. You're burning the Israeli flag means that you know that you're totally safe here, that you know that you're totally free here. And you're a Zionist, whether you want to believe it or not. It's a great story, whether it's true or not is irrelevant. Right? And I think that's the point. We have inordinate issues here, and I'm happy to explore all of them 
Second, we have inordinate issues here, but the problem of the discourse about Israel, outside Israel, is that it focuses on significant parts of the pie which do need to be addressed because they are security issues and moral issues and other kinds of issues, but they leave completely aside the question of what are we doing here? Why did we come here? What are we trying to build? And I think your role as communal leaders is to try to see if you can shift that conversation. This is the place where the Jewish people not only came home, this is the place where the Jewish people came home to reimagine itself. It is the most prolific, dynamic, multicultural, multicolored, vibrant reimagination that one could possibly imagine. Does one have any idea what it's going to look like 50 years from now? No idea whatsoever. But it is the place where in literature and in culture and in television and in music and in politics and even in the military and in a whole array of ways, we're busy trying to figure out what should it look like to be a Jew when the only person who decides what it is to be a Jew is you. That's the question at the core of this country. And that's what I think we're doing here. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.